0: This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. All right, so August Research Roundup. Um, I feel like it was just a couple days ago that we did this, man. Oh, wait. It was because we literally just recorded <laughs> July since I deleted it the first time. Um, but I love it. I think it's, uh, th- these are two really cool studies. Uh, one I'm excited about because I've, I've been passionate about actually sequencing for a long time. Like I've done presentations on program design and I always kind of preface it like this isn't backed by research, but experience. And this is what I find to be best. Um, so I'm excited to talk about that one. Um, and then the second one I'm excited about because I texted you and was like, we should do this Uh, roundup on this topic, which was aggressive fat loss versus slow and sustainable. So I think it's going to be super applicable. So um, if you want to go through uh, kind of break down the first
1: one, let's just get into it. Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, the first one is, like you said, on exercise order. And it's a a fairly simple design. They took about 50 young, healthy, active men uh, and randomized them to four different exercise protocols. So these are Again, very simple protocols. You either have a bench press, you have a lying trice- triceps extension, or you have a combination of those two where either you do the bench press first or you do the bench press second. Um, so typically when, you know, you go to the gym, you probably bench press first and you do triceps later. So uh, the, the question was basically, does it matter for hypertrophy or strength if we do a single joint or multi-joint first? And to give you know, listeners a little bit of background, the, the, the standard is to do multi-joint first. It's like if you look at the textbooks, ACSM and SCA, like whatever, it's usually you know, do your compounds and then go to your single joint. Um, so this was kind of getting at that question. Now the protocol was just those two movements again. And they did, it was 10 weeks of training. So not terribly long, but longer than you know, last roundup when we we're doing six weeks. Uh, It was twice a week, and they did something really neat where they increased the sets per exercise every couple weeks. So like the first four weeks, it was three sets twice a week, and then the next three weeks, it was four sets, and the last two weeks, it was five sets. So something that we might actually do in practice um, if we're doing a mesocycle of design. Um, So getting to the results, uh, as you would kind of expect, those who did bench press got better at bench press. I, when I teach classes on exercise science, I, I'm always drilling in the principle of specificity, which is if you want to get better at something, you got to do it, which is why powerlifters bench squat deadlift so much. Um, so they basically found in strength purposes or strength results, the uh, combination or the bench press got better at bench press. But the single joint one, the group, Kind of got a little bit better. Like I got about seven or eight percent better, uh, but nothing major. And then on the tricep extension. So I don't know if you ever wonder in the tricep extension, <laughs> but it's 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 kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> um, they they didn't really find any strength differences, um, but the single joint or the groups who did single joint in general, like either in combination or solo. It uh, did a little bit better than just bench pressing. So that kind of fits with what we would think. It's like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm doing triceps, so I should probably get a little stronger. Uh, now, when they went to look at hypertrophy, right, we want a, we want a big chest, big big arms. Um, they did relative change, which is kind of normal. And the triceps did not change much if you only did tricep extension. So the the bench press, or sorry, let me rephrase that, clarify. If you did triceps only, your chest didn't grow, um, which we'd expect. Now, there were not really any differences between the other groups, they were all bench pressing. Um, And then if we just look at the triceps size, uh, the groups who did triceps all grew about the same, but the bench press didn't grow as much. So that kind of tells us, All right if I want to grow triceps I probably need to do some triceps too Um, now I they they report training volume which we've talked about and I wanted to know how did doing exercise order affect training volume and it seems like the group who did the bench press then tricep extension did the most volume Um, and they also kind of had a little bit better responses in Hypertrophy and strength, so that kind of fits with our our bias or my bias at least, where I'm thinking, okay, let's do compounds first, and then, and then triceps. Um, now, it, it's funny because if you read the paper and you read read my blog on it, I talk about this kind of war that's going on, and there's these two sets of researchers who are battling over like, do we even need uh, single joint movements? And you know, as a as a bodybuilder, I'm like, well, yeah, definitely. And so I kind of break it down and, and go through some of their research and, and stuff like that. But um, it's kind of interesting because most people want to do uh, different accessories along with their compound movements.
0: We can edit this out. I'll wait a sec. You give me the thumbs up. That way I don't start. You should be good. Go okay. So when we when we consider like practical application of this, right, like uh, one thing that comes to mind is like pre-fatigue, right? Like that was really popular at one point in time, um, and then it became kind of like, well, if you pre-fatigue, you're going to have poor performance, right? So like, if you pre-fatigue your chest before a bench press, then you are going to actually probably build more triceps because your chest is kind of fatigued right and something has to kind of take over um Mm -hmm. do you think this study gave any more or less merit to that because there's still some people that that are uh that promote pre-fatigue and think that it has application um i'm i'm kind of the textbook style like you mentioned like i want all my energy to lift heavy on the compound lift and then i'll get all to my accessory work later um but where do you stand with the pre-fatigue based on this
1: yeah so i'm not a huge fan of pre- fatigue either you just get so much more um kind of results from the compounds like you hit so many more muscles it's 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 not going to help you as much to pre-fatigue now it's probably not going to hurt you that much um but i i seldom use like a true pre-fatigue like if you went and did you know four sets of leg extensions and then you squatted or you know hamstring curls and then you deadlifted um You know, if you're really, really struggling on a certain um, muscle, it might be beneficial. So like if your quads are just super lagging or something, or you want to just build them up really big, you could do that and maybe it would help fatigue them more, Uh, but then your lifts would go down. So so there's a a trade-off that you have to make.
0: Do, like, what about ones like I kind of talked about before we started recording, like the hamstring curls before squatting, where in this case, I, it can kind of be considered pre-fatigue because I'm doing something before I squat on purpose, mm-hmm. but I'm not fatiguing. Like when I squat, it's usually quad dominant, like pretty close stance, upright, high bar. But when I do hamstring curls, it's completely hamstring. It has nothing to do with my quads, but I feel better with squatting. Um, do you have any explanation as to why that would be? Besides, like I said, I just bro science to me. It just works. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and during your sets, you're probably they're probably like a little bit tougher than warm up sets. I mean, they're not like it's not like you're repping out mad hamstrings, right? So yeah. that that wouldn't be as um, worrisome, I guess. Because it, and it's also alternate because you're you're quad dominant in your squat, um, so that shouldn't play a big role. There is something called uh, post activation potentiation, which is like if you lifted a lot of heavy weight, you're kind of primed to do um, more. Say if you like did a heavy squat and then you did a vertical jump. Um, so your body's primed to jump higher because of that uh, PAP is what we call it. And that's just a uh, kind of physiological overload of calcium and potassium and stuff. It only works for probably 10, 10 to 20 seconds afterwards. Um, but you can use to your advantage sometimes in um, more like sport specific settings. Uh, but yeah, for for your like your method, I think I think that's totally fine. I've even used some not pre-fatigue, but kind of like a, a little bit extra of a warm up for um, lat pull downs. So if I'm doing back, I'll go in and do just some single arm kind of pull downs with ropes or something. Just kind of you know find my groove and get it a little warm, uh, and then go do you know lat pull downs or do. Uh, Pull-ups or something like that. So there's definitely some merit to making sure you're like warm. Yeah, and
0: and that the right muscle groups are just firing. I even I yeah. like doing, uh, for example, having people do face pulls before they bench press. Their, their shoulders just feel better. Um, I don't have any study to show face pull before versus no face pull before, but they feel better. And if your shoulders feel better from doing more face pulls, then damn it, we're going to do more face pulls. You know. And I think um, with with the post potentiation. Does, would that work in the reverse too, in the same exact way? Because I've learned over the years that doing explosive work in the same movement pattern potentially—I mean, obviously—fire your nervous system, so you have some stimulation there. But potentially uh, with motor units, muscle fibers, things like that. So doing that before, like let's say I'm doing a, a box jump or a squat jump before I squat, my squat performance is going to be better based on that. Or like a chest throw, or a plyo push up, or a bench press. Mm. Does that make sense?
1: yeah yeah and and it i don't think i'm trying to remember uh, it's been a while since i looked at this stuff because it was really popular to do like just like you said a bench throw and then a bench press mm-hmm. for a while um i don't remember who made it popular but i don't think that explosive lower ish weight stuff is gonna do much in terms of hinder your your, your secondary performance um i i think I don't think it would work as well as the other way around in terms of increasing performance um so i would recommend like all right if you're more of an athlete let's bench press and then do your med ball throws or something when doing it that way going back to the bench
0: press is your performance going to be better because of that
1: um
0: that's my question with it because even because i'll even admit like and again this might be mental i feel better when i'm explosive in that movement pattern before I, and it's probably just you know i'm warming up i'm getting the groove loosened with really low injury like i'm doing a five pound med ball throw right or like a yeah i'll push up on the ground and leaving five in the tank like it's just let me get a couple explosive reps and then go into it
1: yeah i think so so maybe i again there's this is outside the realm of, of science now so we can just kind of speculate a little bit um, you know if it helps you activate that power that you need to get your bench press up then yeah i mean it's not it's not going to hurt you for sure um so whether the benefit is probably more dependent on you as a person like oh this is what i really like it helps me connect you know use my chest more or something then go for it
0: i, I even remember using a technique I, I think it was called contrast that's years ago again yeah. i don't think this is proven but like i believe it was like you do like 90 percent of your one rep max just one rep right like one heavy rep racket peel weight and then do more and then a potentially you'll build more muscle on the the higher rep set that you do because of that heavy
1: one rep prior Yeah, so that's what i'm talking about with the the pap is doing exactly that it's like you do one heavy set or one rep or something and then you back off and use it for um for volume and, and normal sets um but it only lasts like a little bit of times so you have to be careful um there's yeah, there's really not too much hypertrophy research on that. A lot of it's power based, mm-hmm. uh, which does seem to improve your power. Yeah. Um okay, so so going back to
0: the study before I keep kind of throwing random. <laughs> <things> <laughs> there. Okay. Um again going into like exercise order with other things where do you think like what do you think like the, the practical application of this do you think it's like super useful were you were you excited about the results you saw in this or is it just kind of reassuring you like yeah i'm probably doing things right like
1: hit your compounds first then go to the single joint yeah so it, it's kind of confirming my biases now there was a part i didn't tell you about this in the study where they found when they looked at the triceps um they found different hypertrophy magnitudes in different heads of the triceps um so it it wasn't like significant or it wasn't very strong data but there's beginning to be this idea and fairly well supported in the literature that you can hypertrophy certain parts of either a muscle or different muscle bellies uh, by altering maybe your range of motion or how you're holding your hands and stuff and that goes back to the old school of like no you need to have a neutral grip uh, uh prone grip and a reverse grip and when you're doing your arms for example so i thought that was kind of interesting uh, there's a good review that I, I link up in the in the blog uh looking at um range of motion and hypertrophy and stuff so that was kind of neat
0: i think that's kind of similar to uh the study chris barriricad did where basically i think it was curls and it's basically just like uh flex position of the shoulders, So like easy bar curl, spider curl, something like that neutral mm-hmm. position. So just like a barbell curl, and then like a incline bench curl where your shoulders are in hyperextension. Um, and they equated volume and that group saw better results. Be- and, and I'm assuming it's probably cause it's just different stimulus, but then also like what you're saying, you're, you're targeting different bellies. So you might have more well-rounded growth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's really like a lot of data comes out of, um, you know, Schoenfeld's lab, right? Like he's part of a lot of different studies. So he kind of has his hand in everything. Um, but even before, before that, it was starting to turn towards, you know, you need to have a well-rounded program. You don't want to just do a couple movements. Like you, you want to focus on a couple movements, maybe for, for a mesocycle and then change them maybe, or if you really like them, keep them the same. Um, but not just to go in and do, you know, bench press and tricep pushdowns every single time. Because then you're going to miss out on that that holistic hypertrophy, like you said. Is Brad like the godfather of hypertrophy research? (laughs) I don't know how he publishes so much. I (laughs) I mean, I know him personally, and I'm just like, I don't, man, here's something else. Because he didn't even start getting into research until I think his late 40s or something. It's crazy. Yeah, He's, he's a machine.
0: Yeah, he is. That he's literally on so like the, the amount of times I've read about or like looked at a study that's about hypertrophy and I see his last name, I'm like, what the hell? Like it's just, it's wild. Um, okay, so like with, I'm gonna throw out like before we wrap up this day, I'm gonna kind of throw out what my experience I've done, and then you can tell me like if it's supported by this or any anything else. I typically go through um like kind of phases. I'm really like I like exercise sequencing not because it's necessarily in my opinion, it's not necessarily going to directly impact hypertrophy. Like you're not going to get bigger this session because you're doing it this way, but over time you are going to perform better and feel better with your joints. And therefore that is going to indirectly lead to better results in eight, 12, 24 a year, like a long time, right? Weeks. Um, and, and for me, that's like, obviously go through your warm-up, do your mobility, do that stuff. But then we start with like an activation phase and, and that's where I go. Okay. If you're squatting, I'm going to do some hamstring curls and maybe uh and this is another bro science one like an anti rotation. Um I, I read way back from somebody, I think it was Joe DeFranco. He was talking about how he noticed better internal external rotation of the hip with his athletes who did side planks or pallof presses and stuff like that before a squat or deadlift.
1: Um mm-hmm. so
0: I started trying it. I felt way better, so that's been a been a staple for me is like okay, before we squat, hamstrings and uh side plank or pallof press or something like that, then we'll squat get the bread and butter out of our way. Then we're going to go to our like most energy demanding accessory lift. So maybe that's an RDL, like a barbell RDL. Mm -hmm. And then I'll move on to isolation stuff. Like the rest of the day, it's like, it's all pretty like minimal fatigue from a a systemic point. It's just muscularly fatiguing. So I'm just doing hamstring curls. I'm doing leg extensions, calf raises, stuff like that. Um, And then I always say for fat loss clients, metabolic work for the very end. Like you, you, it's, it's mind numbing. If you do five rounds of 15 on 45 off on the assault bike before you do any of this other stuff, every, all your performance is going to suck with the rest. So do it at the very, very end and just burn some calories and get the hell out. Um,
1: yeah.
0: and, and I kind of do that with everything, right? So if it's a bench press, we're doing like face pulls and, um, probably some kind of shoulder stability. Like I really like bottom up walks with like a light kettlebell just for stability,
1: mm-hmm.
0: bench press. And then we might go to a military press and a chin up and then just some accessory work for our upper back, root delts, shoulder, stuff like that. Um, and I kind of do that with everything. And and from my experience, like people just feel better. And I started doing it more when I started online coaching a lot, because I think you have to worry more about people getting injured when you're an online Mm -hmm. coach, because when I'm in person with somebody, like I'm monitoring your weight, I'm monitoring your form. I know you're going to be safe. But when I got into online game, I was like, I really have to program this precisely because if I don't, people are going to get hurt. And I can honestly say that it's very rare that anybody ever gets hurt. Like in the last, I don't know how many years I've had very little injuries at all. And when they are, like the ones I can recall, it's like a dude that's like, I know I maxed out. I wasn't supposed to, but <laughs> I hurt my back. And it's like, all right, man, like <laughs> I told you not yeah. to do a wonder at Max Deadlift today, but that's okay. Um, and I've done that. But uh, do, you, do you feel like that's like, uh, I guess, supported by research in general, like the, like the way I'm going about it?
1: Yeah. So I think when you're programming – it's very dependent on what you wanna be, right? So like my bodybuilding program would be, I'd have some of the same components, but I wouldn't be worried as much about, you know, the health of maybe my like the the pre-activation stuff that you did. Now, some bodybuilders are the opposite, they want that. But what you described is more kind of like general health, you're gonna get stronger, you know, you might gain a little muscle along the way, Um, but it's just a better, honestly, method for life. Um, you know, I know a lot of our clients aren't like physique athletes at all. And so programming, like you said, is perfect. Like you got your, your lifts, you've got your compounds, you've got a little bit of accessories for fun. You know, you can even like superset those if you're short on time and then you have your, um, your calorie burn at the end. So I, I'm starting to actually train more like that. Um, just to to focus a little more on health and get away from the, you know, old school or new school, really bodybuilding stuff where you go so high volume and you're just trying to like inkle out every little thing.
0: I think I realized it more when I stopped training people in person. Cause when I trained people in person, I was on the floor for six hours straight. I was walking, moving. I'd jump up on the bar and like kind of stretch, like you're just nonstop. Right. So by the end of the day, like when my sessions were done, I'd get a lift in. I didn't even need to warm up. I was like, let's go. And I just start lifting. But then I sat on my computer for hours and I was like, oh, I'm tight, you know? So then I started really kind of thinking about this stuff and it made me realize, well, the average individual does the same thing. They sit at work, they, they get in their car and they drive to work, right? Sitting, sitting, then they sit at work and, they, and then they go to the gym or soul cycle and then they're sitting again and, I don't know, <laughs> but, and now their shoulders are rolled forward more, their hip flexors are tighter, so, um, a lot of people will ask me too, like, why do you do so much posterior chain? And I'm like, because the average person really needs it because they're so flexed constantly. But when I get an athlete, like I, I always say like, there's a two to one ratio, like two, two poles to one push. I think that's really like simplistic, but it works well. But there's a lot of people that are physique athletes that I work with that. I don't do that. It's like a one to one because. They wake up and they go on a walk, and then they do some mobility, and they're doing like, yo- like yoga for a little bit, like or like yeah. athletes that are doing ROMWOD, and they have these app. I don't have to worry about them. Right? It's it's completely different ball game. So I think uh, I think in general, like you said, and it and it's I think the word functional is funny. Like I use it a lot because I think it's it's a good catchy word, and
1: mm-hmm.
0: for most people, if they get what I'm trying to say, it's it's appealing because it is functional. But there's a lot of people that like. I mean, I remember. <laughs> I have a presentation I do and one of the first pictures I show was like two thousand eleven. I was doing creating content back then and I was doing a push up. My feet were on a bosu ball and then I had two med balls stacked on top of each other.
1: And I was oh, doing push ups on me. And it was just like
0: <laughs> come on, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. It's okay. It's, but, it's, um, it's fun. You know, we learn. we learned, we all started somewhere and exactly. it's still, still going.
0: So, it's, and I use it for that reason in my presentation when I'm talking to coaches, but I think that, um, to me, somebody asked a question to the day cause I, I wrote functional in a post and he said like, what is functional? Like, and he's like, I, I don't mean this to start a controversy. I'm like, actually curious. Like, wh- what do you mean by functional? And to me, I was like, if the training enhances your life, or helps you be injury free i think it's functional right you can bodybuild but if you're doing it functionally you're taking care of your body along the way you're not letting your joints get beat up in the process which is pretty common for powerlifters
1: and bodybuilders yeah yeah for sure it's it's i don't know as, as i get older <laughs> i'm more like man you know i'm tired of beating myself up all the time this is not as much fun as it used to be
0: yeah well shit man i tore my meniscus rolling out of bed oh no yeah this was last year because technically it was torn for like five years when i went and got the mri they were like oh this is like it's just all gunk like you've had this has been torn years ago so we're either going to take it out and you're going to get uh like arthritis over the next five years and have a knee replacement or we're going to somehow salvage it and they did salvage it that was my third tear in that knee of acl MCL, meniscus it's bad over the years but um that was like the final straw for me i was like okay I, and I actually do static stretching in the morning now because I'm like, my quads are so tight from not having that range of motion in my knee for so long. Mm. Um, so I think that like, it, it, it is one of those things where you almost have to get a little bit older. And, and like, you know, my daughter wants me to crawl around in her little princess tent now that's hard to get in and out of. And you start realizing these little things and you're like, okay, maybe I should yeah. listen to those. Because <laughs> I remember lifting with some older dudes that would always say like, dude, you got to start this stuff now. And I'm like, come on, man.
1: I'm good. Uh, I'm good now. I'm yeah. good. I do one. I'm like 45, whatever.
0: <laughs> exactly. And now I'm like, Oh shit, I should listen. But, um, cool. Do you have a, uh, do you have anything else to kind of cover on that study before we move on to
1: the next one? No, that one was, you know, nice and simple. So it was, it was a good exercise order study. Cool. Uh, study number two, what do we got? Okay. So this is getting at the question, you know, uh, severe versus moderate, uh, deficits. And this was in some postmenopausal uh, obese women. So maybe not relatable to everyone, um, but it was a really long study. So it, it, it's a, a, called the Tempo Diet Trial. Um, this is a randomized clinical trial. And they had 101 people recruited and they randomized them to either a severe deficit for um, four months and then they would go to the moderate deficit for the rest of the year. That's four plus eight and, or a moderate deficit for the whole time. Um, so that's like 12, 12 months of it's 25 to 35% deficit, which is pretty Whoa. big. Yeah, yeah. Long time. Se- the severe def- deficit was 65 to 75%. So that's, Whoa. you know, if you're eating 2,000 calories, then you need to do some math. That's not
0: many calories. <laughs> so i got a question about this. Um, when they predict these calculations and studies, are they – like you're telling me your weight and height and age and all that stuff. And I'm just going to calculate your TDD and just do it that way versus, you know, when we get a client and they want to lose weight, but they're under consuming what our calculation says they should be consuming to maintain their weight, um, which could be from adherence could be that weekends would look different than weekdays, whatever. But I'm just curious, are they actually doing it like where, Hey, track your weight and food for seven days. We're going to take an average and see what your maintenance is. Or is it like just a calculation? Cause I think that's one a
1: little bit. Yeah, this one actually did track for 2 weeks. So they were they knew they were at maintenance, which is pretty rare in, in studies because it does take a lot of effort. Like yeah. they um the nice thing about this study was they they actually met with a dietitian every 2 weeks for the first 6 months mm. and then I think um it was like once a month they would meet. Um, so they had that that kind of like, hey, you need to be, you need to be on your diet. You need to be doing your things. Um, now there was no like exercise, they encouraged them to exercise. They didn't like give them a workout plan or supervisor exercise or really anything. Um, so, this is a, a true diet study. Um, so, they randomized them. Now, the kicker is the, the severe deficit was actually given meal replacements. So, I'm sure you've seen the like 600 calorie shakes, and you just yeah. eat shakes for the, for the day or whatever. Um, so, they used that method. And it, was, it was kickstart i'm not super familiar with that brand but it seems to be a popular brand in australia um and then the moderate deficit group followed the australian guide to healthy eating and i was looking at their guide to healthy eating and the american guide to healthy eating and i was like man australia's got their stuff together because um they recommend <laughs> they recommend five five servings of vegetables a day two servings of fruit like five to six uh, servings of whole grain, and then two to three servings of lean meat, um, and and like dairy, like lean dairy.
0: Have you ever seen a pack of cigarettes from Australia? I have not. So they literally have like this big red sign, basically saying it's going to kill you on it, like <laughs> very clear that this is unhealthy, which is cool. Like I think, like he said, I think Australia has their shit together way better than us because it's like, hey, alert, this is literally <laughs> yeah. going to kill you, but not a good marketing tool, but good yeah yeah
1: okay so they so they did that for a year and one of the things that I really liked about this study and this kind of a a learning tool for you guys who are trying to learn how to break down science is they they published a protocol and rationale and that means they published this this pre-study we'll call it where they laid out everything they were gonna do what analysis they were gonna do you know what why they thought the rationale of why it might work or why it's better um, and so that's all out there and up front before they publish the actual, the actual study. So you can check those two and say, okay, well, before you really did this study, or maybe before you got all your data, you thought this. And now you're showing, you know, the same thing, which is good, or you're showing something completely off the wall, and it's like way down your list of things you care about. Mm-hmm. So um, that's something you can look for specifically for randomized uh, clinical trials. Exercise studies don't usually have those. Um, okay so now if we looked at body weight for the first four months the severe group so they're in that severe deficit lost you know 15 to 17 kilos of body weight and the moderate group lost you know eight or nine so the severe group did weight fit a lot better and then once they got to four months they are both on the same diet at that point but they really didn't lose any more weight. So they're still supposed to be in a 25 to 35% deficit, but they just literally plateaued for the next two, uh, actually eight months. And when you look at the three-year follow-up, so this is is just the first year of data, they published their three-year follow-up like last week. Um, They both gained back almost all of the weight and there was like no difference between moderate or severe deficits. Mm. Um, so that's kind of, and we can talk about that later. Um, which is, I think
0: it's, it's, I mean, I've, I've talked about this too. I want to say like the, the weight regain rate is like 95% like of people who lose weight will regain it at least once, right. They might lose it again and, and be able to keep it off that time. Um, why do you think it is that both groups weren't able to keep it off? Do you think it's just a matter of like, with a study, they don't actually teach you principles. It's kind of like, just do this for this time being. And then when it's over, okay go back to life
1: yeah uh, maybe i just think you can only because these are obese like older women you can only do something for so long before it stops working Mm -hmm. Um, now since they've met with a dietitian that helps but you know as as you've probably seen with clients it's like the first couple months are really good and then if they're going to fall off it's like then or they're just going to be good forever um it's like once they stop seeing results well, okay, now we need to adjust. Um, the main issue with this study is they had a dietitian, they had food logs, um, they were actually on one gram per kilogram of protein. they recommended to take that, which is pretty high for, um, for a study like this at least. But they never reported any of the nutrition data. So we don't know like what they were really eating. And we can kind of tell from the body weight data that after four months, well, they, they weren't in a real deficit um, because they weren't losing weight. So that was kind of kind of unfortunate, but it did you know tell us a little bit of what we expected. Um, now when we look at lean mass, right? So that's the, the other thing we're worried about with severe versus you know moderate or, or more general weight loss is it, is, am I going to lose a ton of muscle if I diet real fast? Um, and there was about a two kilo difference. At month four, which is the end of their kind of diet phase, we'll call it. Um, so the moderate group preserved more muscle mass, but you know they didn't lose as much weight in general. So that's kind of understandable. Um, and then they also did MRI, which is the gold standard for um, muscle size. The previous study did that too. That's kind of why I picked it because I was like, oh no, this is this is a really good study. Um, and so the if you just look at the thigh, the thigh size dropped like off a cliff for the severe group. Like they they dropped massively and you can see the the graph in the blog Mm -hmm. and then they come back up a little bit, um, but they're still well below the moderate group. So that's kind of concerning. It's like if we're, especially in this population, if we're dieting, we don't really want to lose muscle because it's going to be hard for them to gain it back, Uh, especially if they they don't exercise.
0: So would you say that this gives rationale to say like, okay, you come to me, your goal is strictly fat loss. You really don't care about anything else. We should probably take a more aggressive approach because you're going to get more out of it versus, Hey, I want to lose weight, but I want to be jacked afterwards. Like I want to hold on to every ounce of muscle. And it's like, okay, we're going to take a slow, steady process because you have a different goal at the end outcome. That makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's where i've started to go is you know when you have someone who's uh, you know obese or has been overweight their whole life it's like okay well you have this opportunity to change where they're at for potentially a while if you can get them to lose 20 pounds 30 pounds whatever it is fairly quickly yeah they'll lose maybe a little bit of muscle but you can put that back on with some resistance training or maybe they just want to you know lose weight and then you along the way convince them that hey don't you don't you feel better because your body feels better (laughs) yeah you know then you add uh, other stuff in later um but but yeah i've had numerous clients just like we need to lose 30 pounds we're going to go aggressive like as long as you can as hard as you can then we'll kind of as soon as you start to break we'll reevaluate
0: and i think that's why i I would say it's pretty 50-50, like whether I'm going with a more aggressive approach or not. But one of the reasons why I like a more aggressive approach is because I find, you know, four weeks of dieting is four weeks of dieting. So even if I put you in like a moderate deficit or a big deficit, you're going to feel it, right? It's going to be kind of annoying. Like you're not going to have fun. So I'd rather get as much work as I can in before that, you know what I mean, before that diet fatigue uh, kind of settles in. Now, on the contrary, people like myself or like some clients that I can think of, slow and steady works great because they want to keep their lifts up, they want to maintain muscle mass, and they eat like a bro anyway. So it's like, you know, oh. make a little deficit. It's not that hard for me. I just eat more rice and broccoli or less rice and broccoli. Like it's just yeah, it's really scoop out.
1: You're like, yep, that's gone. Okay, that's 200 calories.
0: So literally, what I would it's like, okay, I'm just gonna eat you know, one cup instead of two cups rice done. You know what I mean? It's super easy. So, um, I think it depends on that, but I think what I would have liked, unless you're going to get to this, so maybe you are, but what I would have liked to see in the study too, is like, uh, almost like psyche valves along the way. Like, so you can kind of determine where the uh, psychology of the individual is at throughout the study. At what points do, does that fatigue and stress and bad sleep and things like that start to kind of kick in because we track those things with clients. And that's what kind of gives me the signal to say, you know, we need a diet break. Like, we got to pull back a little bit or like, we're almost done with this cut. Like, I know you're not there at your goal yet, but you're done. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. And they, they didn't, they didn't do at least publish it. I think they, they actually did it. They just didn't report it. Um, I remember you know, with big clinical trials like this, they split it up into like four or five different papers. So there might be a whole paper on just the psych uh-huh. stuff. And then you can, you have to, it's, it's hard because you have to piecemeal. You're like, okay, so the first year you found this, and then the third year you found this, and then there's this other paper on hunger and appetite. Oh, and there's this psych paper too. And it's all the same, like the exact same people, exact same outcomes, but they're all spread out. So, so that's another difficulty when you try to interpret science. Yeah. Um, and let's see. So to put this into perspective, kind of like for the average client who trains. Um because again, we we want to keep our muscle, even if if your goal is just to be healthy. You usually want to keep your health, your muscle. There are two studies that I want to kind of refer to. And so the first one we covered um a couple of research roundups ago was the Campbell study, the refeed study, right? So go back and listen to that if you haven't or read the blog. But they were in a 25% caloric deficit not terrible, pretty, pretty, you know, moderate, not super aggressive, but comparable to this study, you know, the the moderate group at least. And they did it for seven weeks and they, they adhere pretty well. Um, and they were like, I don't know, 20% body fat or something, but they ended up because they were training, keeping almost all of their muscle, like their lean mass didn't really change much, if you remember the results of that. If you collapse the groups, so if you take the, con- the control and the refeed, you just kind of say, okay, they're not that much different. We're going to combine them, um, which you can do in some cases. Uh, it gives you a better idea of like, what's the major effect of dieting for seven weeks? So They didn't lose much muscle. There's a study in um, female athletes, female physique competitors, who dieted for like 20 weeks and they were at like a 20, 21, 22% deficit. Um, And of course, they're they're trying to hold on for as as much muscle as they can. And they ended up not losing any, like after 20 weeks of contest prep. Um, That might be a little bit female specific, but that kind of tells us, hey, you know, if we train really hard and we diet really hard for a long time, maybe we won't lose that much muscle or any.
0: I think a part of that too. And this is why I do like refeeds. Um, and this isn't all of it. Obviously there is the potential, like you said, but I think adding in high carb refeeds, and diet breaks can help replenish some of that glycogen. Cause sometimes you're just flat. Like mm-hmm. I, uh, I was talking about this on the other podcast. It's funny. Cause I, So I got my chest tattoo, and I couldn't train for a week and a half because, like, you can't stretch your pec, right? So there was one day I came in, and I did 100 leg extensions, like, literally. Just (laughs) I picked a weight, and I was like, I'm just going to go So I had 100. But couldn't really train anything because I couldn't put a bar on my back, couldn't hold the deadlift, couldn't bench. Um, And so by the time I got back to the gym, and I lowered carbs a little bit during that time because I just wasn't active, I told Eric, my coach, I was like, dude, like we might need a mini cut soon. I was like, <laughs> I feel skinny fat. Like this is, this is like, I think we pushed the gains too far. And I was like talking. And as I got to the bottom of the email, I was like, honestly, just take this with a grain of salt. Cause I feel like I just need to go get a lift. And he was like, dude, I do that every time I don't lift. And it's just funny. But my point being is I felt like flat, like I just didn't feel good. And then as soon as I like trained, pump my muscle up and ate some more carbs, felt better, look leaner weight stable those like okay i'm fine um but i think yeah. that's like what i notice in dieting too is like i'll have people do pretty consistent refeeds like leaner guys and i, I work with some coaches and they'll ask me like oh is this like for like what reason are you doing so i'm like honestly i'm just doing it so you get a pump again like i just want to keep kind of filling you up it's the pump <laughs> yeah like every three to five days let's take a high carb day and just get your muscles pumped back up so you feel good in the gym like that's really all it is and it, and it changes i think
1: yeah. When, um, you know, it's bad when you're dieting and then you take pre-workout and it does nothing. And you're like, well, I don't even feel the difference in a pump anymore. So yeah. it's like, maybe I need some carbs. Yeah. Something's going on at that point. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. I think that that was kind of the main takeaways from this study. You know, it's, they were very interested. The authors were in bone mineral density because as we, as females specifically age, they lose bone mineral density. And so if you're postmenopausal and you're older and you're overweight and you lose a bunch of weight, you don't want to lose like bone because bone takes forever, like forever to grow. Like we're talking, if you started strength training, you might see a 1% increase in bone after a year or two. Whereas muscle, you could gain 20 pounds of muscle, bone turnover is extremely slow. and so that was the, probably the most concerning thing out of the study is you know they they lost a good bit of bone mineral density um by the end of the year so that's kind of like okay well maybe that's another strike against the severe diet for this population at least because they want to hold on to their bone got it
0: love it i think uh i think one of the things you wrote down kind of answers it the best you said you know like my answer always depends and i think that's yeah Really, it comes down. You said it depends on what type of diet you're following. Depends on how much cardio you want to do, how much fat mass you start with, how long you can eat here for, um, your level of life stress, on how you exercise, your meat. Like, there's so many things that depends on. I think plays a role in this and and one of my biggest predictors of, of the severity of a deficit i'm going to put on somebody is the life stress like are you really worked up and anxious about what's going on in the world uh your job like do you have a good relationship or is it a bad relationship like do you have a two-year-old that's not sleeping and that's you know what i mean that's a stress it's like let's factor yeah. those things in probably going to go with a, a moderate approach there's no reason to be too aggressive you know and i think they just look mm-hmm. for somebody to say faster like progress like right like a more aggressive deficit's going to lead to faster results like do that and then they just Run with it and i don't i don't think it ever is as black as white and black and white as that
1: no definitely not it's i mean and you know some people have different life stress like i don't have like i don't have a kid but you do so you have that whole thing to deal with and i'm just like over here with two dogs and i'm like yeah i don't have to worry about not sleeping they sleep all night <laughs> yeah.
0: and, and and funny enough it's actually like so my daughter's going through a sleep regression right now and it and it plays a big role like when you know it's three in the morning and she's waking up and she just wants milk or water and just she just wants you to come in there it's so, dude like <laughs> the night like i walk in there and i'm like yeah right? and she was like poo poo I poo poo and i'm like all right so i put her on the change table <laughs> and then i'm like you didn't you're dry there's no and she starts laughing and i'm like Aww. you literally just tricked me into getting you out of the crib because you said you needed to get changed and now she can talk so she's like starting to She's clever, but, um, but that messes with my sleep. And I, and I actually, I'm good about that. Cause I learned my lesson right when we had her, I tried to just keep training as hard and often as I was. And I wasn't sleeping at first cause she was waking up constantly um, when she was an infant. And I just, dude, I got to a point where I was like depressed. I was just so run down from being just beating myself up in the gym. And that's when I was like, okay, I need to adjust training according to what's going on in my life. And I think that's really important for people to understand.
1: Yeah, cuz uh, you know, as we as, as we've talked about, it takes so long to build muscle. Mm-hmm. And really if there's anything quarantine has taught me, it's that you 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 retain most of your muscle. Like yeah. most of it, it'll come back pretty quick. Um I was I was always kind of skeptical of the studies. We've done a couple studies on detraining and retraining. But like, you know, 6 months into it, you're you're back to normal. Yeah
0: it's actually funny i've seen a lot of people do like before quarantine after quarantine and like to show that like they're fine like nothing changed right um and i think that's cool because i think it is like you might not be able to build as much muscle with bands and body weight but you could probably maintain your muscle just fine like it's not the end of the world yeah for sure well cool i think that concludes this one man i think uh i'm gonna link the for you guys listening i'm gonna link Brandon's Instagram in the show notes, my Instagram in the show notes, go give him a follow. He put, posts a ton of great content. Um, and I will link the blog for this one in the show notes as well as the other research roundups in case you missed those. Um, and as always, if you have any questions, shoot us an email, shoot us a DM, let us know and we're happy to help.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering. And because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor: Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, Head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the nutrition hierarchy.